Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Hashtag RealPod. You're listening to episode four, and I'm your host, Victoria Garrick. Today's guest is so incredibly special. I was over the moon hyped to get her on the podcast. Her name is Nicole Davis. She is a two-time Olympic medalist. She was the libero for the USA women's volleyball team in the Beijing and London Olympics. Most regard her as one of the best liberos to ever play the game. I regard her as the best. (laughs) And now she is a performance mindset coach at Pete Carroll's Compete to Create, mentally training the most elite athletes in sports today. So just rehashing that, for eight years, Nicole was the best in the United States of America. I mean, that's just absolutely insane. And I was lucky enough to meet her my freshman year at USC. She was our volunteer assistant coach that spring. And okay, when she walked into the gym, my jaw absolutely dropped. I mean, not only are we the same position and she's absolutely a legend, but we're the same number. So total fangirl moment. Also, this is episode four. So wow, things are totally aligning. But anyways, I just almost died when I saw her because this was a huge opportunity to learn from her and get close to her. And thankfully we did. And she became my mentor. She was there for me throughout my four years at USC. We've developed such a special relationship and words can express words cannot explain how much Nicole means to me. I know you will absolutely love this episode and hopefully have some major takeaways that you can apply to your life today. Nicole talks about how to create value in your life, what it means to be gritty, how to deal with life-shaking challenges, and overall explains the way an elite athlete should approach their game. All right, I can literally hype this woman up for days, so I will cut myself off now, but keep on listening to hear from the one and only Nicole Davis. Am I like the only one from that season from that season that kind of like persistently texts you? <laughs> persistently, yeah. I heard from Sarah recently. Oh, which yeah, was she's great. Which was fun to hear from her and catch up and it just blew my mind that yeah. not everyone like I was when you walked in the gym, I was like, Oh my god, I'm gonna like get lunch with her, do everything with her, like I would not leave you alone. And the other girls were like, eh, like volleyball, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I'm so much older than you guys, and so I think it's easy just to, I don't know, not not want to make the connection, or like all of us, we get wrapped up in the pace and speed of our lives, and it's like, I got shit to do, you know, like, um, and we just miss miss the, the moment inside that this is a really cool opportunity. You taught me so much in that short spring about a side of the game I had no idea existed, mm-hmm. which was the mindset side of the game, mm-hmm. and growth mindset, positive thinking, and... I'll never forget, like, I remember our first 
uh, week you were there, you were leading an exercise. And I don't know if you remember this, but I think about this all the time. It had such an impact on me. You were leading some exercise and I kept raising my hand and answering questions all day long because I was just so pumped you were there. And then there was a time you said, does someone want to come volunteer? Mm -hmm. And I didn't raise my hand. Mm -hmm. And you were like, Victoria, why did you not raise your hand? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Oh, I don't know. I just didn't raise my hand. Mm -hmm. And you were like, no, actually, why did you not raise your hand? And I said, because I feel like I've been raising my hand and I'm being really annoying and people are going to think like I should stop. So I didn't raise my hand. And you said, so you were you being yourself in that moment? And I said, no. And you said, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I said it a little softer than that. <laughs> no, but, but wait, you said it in a way where I was like, she's so right. I got to be myself at all times. Yeah. It, it was a moment, though, that I didn't want to let go for you. Uh, for me, that was like what I'd call coaching moment, you know, like, um, I saw what was happening for you in that moment. And I wanted to create just a little bit of tension for you to, to, for it to almost be like a little, a little bit of pain, you know, uh, not in like a super emo way, but like those moments of insights, those moments where we feel pain cause we don't show up or we, we're, we're small in a moment are the, the little moments that'll help us change in some way you know and grow to be different and so my hope for you in that moment I could have not said anything and there's a cost like I could have ruined you in that moment as well you know um and so which which that's happened we'll <laughs> <to it later. laughs> uh, but I wanted there to be like a, a a moment for you to just be like dang I can do different and what these people think of me right now is like even if it's judgment from them it's getting in the way of me pursuing what's possible you know so and I always thought about that in classes whenever I didn't want to raise my hand. Mm-hmm. Whenever I wasn't being myself because mm-hmm. I feared how that was, other people's were viewing it, mm-hmm. I was like, nope, I'm going to be me mm-hmm. and that's going to come and go. Okay. So I think you're one of the most intelligent people I know and anything I ever go through in life, and I have to pick and choose. I'm like, okay, I can't text Nicole like every morning about what I want to eat for <laughs> breakfast. So I'm like, if it's a really big issue, I'll text Nicole. But my question is, have you always felt this self-aware and this in the know? And did you feel that way when you were playing with the national team? I've always had self-awareness. I don't know that I've always had language to put to it. Uh, And so I have, in terms of like my inner dialogue, my emotions, what's happening in my body, also kinesthetic awareness, I've always been really in tune with that. But I've not always understood the science behind it and had language to put to it. So I I was a two-time Olympian before I started ever training my mind. So I didn't, I was interested in psychology and I'd read a couple books, you know, and I, I at some point understood what was going, going on in my mind and my body was impacting how I was showing up and performing. But I, I couldn't, it was like I couldn't put the puzzle pieces together quite right. I had all the pieces, but I couldn't fit them together. And so it wasn't until we started working with Dr. Michael Gervais, who's a performance psychologist uh, on the national team, after my second Olympics, that I started to learn about things like confidence. And I started to learn about what Dr. Mike calls FOPO, fear of people's opinions, you know, and how that is oh impacting. God, guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how that's impacting everything that I do, you know. So... Uh, I, I came at this late, which is one of the reasons why I came to the gym at USC as a, as a volleyball coach that you probably heard me coach more on mindset because I was so passionate about it and I understood the impact that it had in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up in a really dysfunctional family. There was a lot of trauma, abuse. And so sport for me was like a coping me- mechanism away from that. And so I competed my little ass off. And sometimes it was at the cost of people around me. And 
I was really consumed with achievement and wanting to be the best in the world. Not, not like, hey, the best in this gym, the best in the world. And, you know, the days that I was the best in the world is great, <laughs> but it's hard on the world stage to, to be that every single day and to stay on the course of improvement while being distracted by things like being better than other people. So the comparison of others and having statistics and numbers thrown in your face every single day. And then having like this dynamic with a bunch of other alpha competitive females, you know, that you're competing against and with for a limited number of spots on the, on the Olympic team, you know, like, 15% 15% of people who actually train for the Olympic team make it. So it's like, wait, you're asking me to put my heart and soul into this, knowing that like it's most likely that it's not going to work out. So it's a tough environment to be in and not have some sort of command of mind to just like express yourself authentically when things go awry. And things go awry every damn day, you know? That's, that's what's hard. It's like there's just, it, yeah, there's a lot coming at you when you're an elite-level athlete. As someone who now fully believes like I think if an athlete came to you and said Nicole I want to be the best in my field at my craft you'd say all right well we got to work on the mind that is absolutely Mm -hmm. crucial Mm -hmm. to getting where you want to be yet you got where you wanted to be without Mm -hmm. spending any time there so are you godly like what do we credit that to because that blows my mind yeah, it blows my mind too. It's crazy for me to think about like what would an Olympics look like if all 10,500 athletes actually trained their mind? <laughs> you know? like, uh, and I don't know that there would be different world records being broken. I would love to have some sort of like assessment done on happiness and joy. So yeah, you can be a high performer and not train your mind. And my experience on it, and I don't want to overlay or generalize this to everybody, but I think you've had a similar experience, is that most days are difficult if you're really getting after it. And when you don't have mental skills to go to, that impacts your experience. It will impact your performance, but doesn't always, right? You can be highly activated, really anxious, exhausted, and still perform, mm-hmm. you know, pretty well. Yeah, we've talked about that. But it just feels like you ran three marathons in a two-hour volleyball match, you know? So it's just like you're burning through so much. So for... for for me, what was missing throughout much of my experience was just joy in the pursuit of finding my best. Uh, I feel like even though I was one of the best in the world, I still had like another 10% in me that I was never really able to touch because I hadn't trained my mind. When you were at the top of your game, did you look in the mirror and think, yes, I'm the best in America, I'm the best in the world? or? Did you ever feel like, oh, maybe it's not me, maybe it's someone else? Mm -hmm. Were you fully confident in that role? I think this is one of the areas where people don't quite get confidence in the mechanics and what levers to pull, right? People think, let's take Kobe Bryant, you know, uh, he, to our, (laughs) as spectators, he looks really confident, right? And he he might be really confident uh, as a basketball player, but maybe he's not as confident as a parent. Or maybe he's really confident when he's playing at home in L.A., but he's not as confident on the road. There's so many things that can trigger productive, non-productive thoughts for us. And so confidence is contextual, and it's a state of mind, and it takes place in the present moment. So I can be confident on my last rep at morning practice before a match, but my first rep of a match could be really shitty. And it, and it all comes down to like the quality of my thoughts leading up to the moment of performance. So now we're talking about like thin slice of moment, 
of performance, right? Because performance takes place in the here and now, in the present moment. And so if your thoughts are right in that moment, it doesn't matter how much confidence you have in general as a person. If your self-talk is really shitty in a moment, you're not generating confidence. So there were certain triggers for me when I was playing that I started to become aware of, like themes and patterns. You know, playing Brazil at the end of my career was a trigger for unproductive thoughts for me. Why? Um, there was a lot that happened um, after my first Olympics. We had a new coach, uh, changed the technique again, so I went through three different styles and three different techniques for playing the game. And I was kind of in the driver's seat for the first two years and then something happened where um, I lost that spot so to speak and our team had historic success we won world grand prix for the first time in a very long time and the coach didn't really want to make any changes and so that really got to me so the next year when I was back in a starting role um, I had the mindset going into that same tournament that we had to win that tournament for me to have value and worth to the coach, to the team, even though I was still one of the best in, in the world in my position. Like I was fighting for value with the people around me, you know, that I was supposed to lock arms and go do difficult things with. So my mindset going into it was like, we have to be successful for me to prove my worth. That model's a little bit broken is that I, I can't determine like what other people are going to do or the outcomes of a tournament. And so going into the finals of that tournament, we were undefeated and I was playing pretty well, but I was starting matches a little bit tight and then I'd like work into it and finish well. And then something also happened right before the, the start of the last week of the tournament, the finals, is that I got a call from a friend at USC uh, who's my, my year and he swam with my ex-boyfriend from USC and he said, um, I'm sorry to break this to you, but Nick passed away. And Nick was my ex-boyfriend. He was 35 years old at the time. He had a heart attack and died. And so for me, that was like a, a perfect storm of like, there's all this pressure that realistically I'm putting on myself to perform well. And almost like it was like, I felt like I had to do extra, you know, like to when you're trying to like gain someone else's approval, like you get in that space where you're like trying to do more than, than you're actually capable well, do they of. Smile at me yeah. Too? And do they... Yeah. And then, uh, that happened and so I was like trying to wrestle with how how does someone who was at one point training for the Olympics have a heart attack at the age of 35 and I didn't take the time to like sit and cry or like mourn his death or process through any of that I just like compartmentalized it packaged it up and like set it on the nightstand at the hotel room and tried to act like I could step onto the court and compete and not feel loss or pain and so I was in this like just weird juxtaposition and I lost it that first match of the finals I remember grabbing my water bottle at the first time out and I could barely squeeze the water bottle to get water in my mouth um, because my thoughts were everywhere you know like everywhere and nowhere at the same time I was thinking about him I was thinking about like you know, this is going back to the question around awareness, like my heart, like I could feel it in my chest, I could feel it in my throat, it was racing. And so then, I, you know, I remember my thoughts just becoming so irrational, like, am I dying right now? Can I die right now? It's like, no, I'm not dying right now, you know, like, but our mind will take you to these places. And so I probably like, if, if that is what a panic attack feels like, fuck, that sucks, you know, like, um, I don't know, I've never had a panic attack outside of that that experience but it was really really challenging to be me 
Brazil picked up on it and they started targeting me at the beginning of matches. And so that led to a lot of performance anxiety. You know, anytime we played Brazil the night before, the day before, whenever the match was looming, I could feel everything coming on. And it was just the spiral of like irrational thought after irrational thought after irrational thought and self-doubt, you know, like, do they know something that I don't know? Am I actually good enough to be here? Do I deserve to be here? Uh, even though I was a, an Olympian already, you know? So confidence is tricky because we don't really spend the time to understand what our internal experience is like and then do the work ahead of time to, to get on top of the thoughts that might come up for us when we're triggered. And we all have triggers, you know? Like some of us have a, a ex-boyfriend or girlfriend that broke, us, broke our heart. Maybe he or she wore a particular perfume or cologne and you can be walking down a random street in a city and smell it and it'll trigger thoughts you know I'm not lovable or whatever it is you know uh could be the coach could be your boss it could be a friend that you had a falling out with you know we can trigger non-productive thoughts in the same way that you know we all have that space or that group of people where it just feels really good to be us and we have the most joy in life and laughter. And so those people, places, and things also trigger productive thoughts. I remember I texted you and told you that every time I... It was something like every time I walk into the gym, mm-hmm. like I feel my heart racing. And then you said, like, what is the trigger? Mm-hmm. And I think I realized it was just the smell. When I smelt the concrete, the mm-hmm. cold Galen Center, <laughs> I thought of this time, that time, this time. And like... Mm-hmm. It was really hard for me and your advice to me was to go where it was uncomfortable and sit in that moment mm-hmm. and like explore it and mm-hmm. so I went to the gym and I was just smelling and thinking and trying to develop peace with that mm-hmm. what was your hope in me mm-hmm. going to that place I was uncomfortable mm-hmm. so a couple of things are really important for performance one is your ability to regulate your attention so just like be where your feet are Uh, The second is to regulate all those feels, you know, like your heart racing, the butterflies in your stomach, the tremble you get in your hands or your legs, uh, dry mouth, like whatever it is, we all get those feels. And so there's this like really sweet spot to where our body's activated and you have a little bit of those feels. But once we go over that sweet spot, it's just damn hard to be you in that moment. And so what you were experiencing was your body activating way too early. Like the the gym, you had started to associate with like negative thoughts, and those negative thoughts led to activation in your body, heart racing, for example. So what I was hoping is that you could become more aware of the themes that were coming up for you, that what was causing the activation, the thoughts, and then also spend some time breathing through it so that you could regulate the activation back down. So get your heart rate down, get your breathing down, so that it was a signal to your body, this place is safe. And so when we compare safety with the gym, for example, then we dampen that fear response that you were getting. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I like I want to say like I did it and it worked well. <laughs> Still, yeah, so it takes time. training. Yeah, it takes yeah. training. That's the thing. I think another thing you said that a lot of athletes can resonate with is this idea of needing that first or second rep, like mm-hmm. that first shot, <laughs> that first swing, whatever it is, to feel good about themselves in that game. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be for players to develop that confidence before their first rep? First of all, confidence comes from self-talk. It doesn't come from preparation. It doesn't come from experience. It doesn't come from the first or last rep, right? And so, like, get your self-talk right. 
if you wouldn't say the thing that you're saying to yourself to your best friend or your homie, don't say it, you know? Or just be aware of it. And when it comes up, like, wink at it. Like, okay, I see you. But, like, this this isn't serving me right now. This is the experience I want to have. These are the thoughts I want to have around it. So get that part right first. And that takes some work. <laughs> Write it down. Externalize it. Do whatever you got to do, you know, to be able to note it when it's happening. Practice mindfulness for Pete's sake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one time I texted you like Nicole Bull, and you were like meditate <laughs> and you like didn't respond to anything else and I was like darn it <laughs> uh, the second part is like have some sort of relationship you know with the, your body of work and your experience in it you know if the first rep doesn't go right you can adjust you can do difficult things as athletes we fundamentally design our lives and our ecosystem around growth. And so what that means is every day is uncomfortable for us and it's often faced with difficult feedback. So we can do difficult things. The problem is, is that we want to associate the last good rep with confidence rather than, no, 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 I, I got this, I'll just, let's go, bring it. Like I, I do difficult things every day. That line of thought generates confidence. So that frees up so much space from like needing to be perfect to no, let's just let's go. I'll figure it out. And so when you when you talk to the best in the world, Alex Hanold is a great example of this. When he runs out of skills and he's not quite sure what to do or there's a nuance to the the mountain he's climbing, he's like, "I'm going to rise to the occasion. I'll figure this out because I'm a damn good climber." And we don't talk versus to ourselves versus like, oh man, I just screwed up. I'm a screw up. I'm such an F up. You know, like that's what happens for most of us when we make a mistake. And I think we take for granted the ability to adjust. That's really when we see like mastery in action. That's what we're watching. Someone adjust to internal demands, all the chaos that takes place in our mind and our body when we're performing, but also external demands. And again, like that was maybe the greatest gift that I've ever been given from Dr. Mike, my, my mentor is that like, you have everything that you need within you to be able to, to meet the demands of this challenge. If we can just anchor to that thought and let go of the need for perfection, let go of the need for achievement and just like, first of all, when do things actually go as planned? You know, like they don't. So like, letting go of control or wanting to control all of that and just anchoring to the idea like i have what it takes i'll figure it out i'll adjust there's so much freedom on the other side of being able to play in that space it's crazy how what you're saying now it's such a big it's a great concept and i think about the little ways like Mm -hmm. you've weaved that into our conversations Mm -hmm. and i think it's very common for athletes to view a circumstance as uh you know there's no way out of this i didn't do well enough, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And I can relay that to when I was competing to be a libero on my team, Mm -hmm. but I was playing in middle back Mm -hmm. during practice. And I texted you and I said, I'm really frustrated. I want to win the left back position, yet all I'm doing is playing middle back. Screw that. There's like, I'm out of, I'm out of it. There's no way. Mm -hmm. And you said, why can't you just be so good in middle back Mm -hmm. that they see you and they have to move you to left back. Mm -hmm. And it was wild that that was never something that came into my mind. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we as athletes are so easily drawn to that negative idea. Yeah, uh, well, there's, a, there's a lot there to pull on. I think one, when frustration's on board, when self-critique is on board, uh, naturally our brain does this thing where our attention and concentration narrows. And so then what it's actually doing is like we're in survival mode, you know? So we're looking for what's dangerous and broken around us. And so what that looks like when you're an athlete is that like you're looking for all of the signs for what, what's wrong in the environment, you know? And, and also like what's dangerous about a person. So, you know, your coach could look at you and not 
make any sort of gesture and then look away and you might internalize that. Oh, he's pissed at me. Like, oh, he's, yeah, he really thinks I'm a screw up, you know, like there's so many ways to take that. And so when, when emotions are on board and especially fear, uh, it's just really hard to think clearly, you know, so it's really hard to extract good in those moments, especially if you haven't trained your mind to think otherwise. So I think we just get in these patterns of thoughts. Um, and what's unfortunate is that they've been influenced. Like how you think and how you coach yourself is a product of how your mom and dad coach you. It's a product of how your bad youth sports have coached you. It's a product of how um, teammates or Shape Magazine or GQ, you know what I mean? It's like the things they say, you know. So we've got this hard wiring of natural responses to adversity that probably at some point helped you get good, you know, like... Uh, screw this, I, I'm in middle back, I don't want to be in middle back, so like, I'm just going to ball out right now, and like, F that guy, you know? And so that like, that prickliness of anxiety, and that kind of like, yeah, I'll prove you wrong, right? It it helped you get good, until a certain point, <laughs> you know? <laughs> then and, there's a new thing. <laughs> and then it just like, beats you up, in some sort of way. And so I think that's part of it is that we just have this history of thinking a certain way. And, and so those um, patterns of thought are deeply encoded. It's hard to get out of it if you don't train otherwise. Uh, so that's that's one part. The other part is just um, like we need others <laughs> sometimes. And it, it sucks that, you know, you were in a position that you didn't feel like you had this that it was a safe place to reach out to someone else and say hey coach me up right now because like I'm not thinking well about this like you had to reach out to me you know Mm -hmm. and so coaches teammates our tribe whatever it is there's such a great sounding board in moments like that to be able to kind of shift focus and re-navigate how we're we're thinking about things Um, the reason why that thought came to me that particular feedback is because coach Pete Carroll is always talking about um, how do you create value for yourself and so that was the first thing that came to mind for, for me when you were like, I'm playing middle back, I'm frustrated, like, this must mean that. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, great, like, how do you create value for yourself, you know, right now? Like, imagine if you can take every ball in the middle back, what that might mean for you playing left back, or what might that mean for the team? Like, what if we're playing, what if you guys are playing an outside hitter that only hits the middle back? Like, what if they could put you there and be confident you're going to ball out and dig every ball? You know, so like... For me, that just that lens of like, how do I create value right now? And optimism. And optimism, yes. Right. I didn't want to get too nerdy on you, though. You get too nerdy. I didn't want to get too nerdy on you. Yeah. No, you can't. It's, yeah. it's really important. Um, it's so important to think this way if we want to succeed or mm-hmm. create a good experience mm-hmm. when it feels it doesn't feel good mm-hmm. to be us. Mm-hmm. And that's something I love you that you say is when it's good to be you, when it's good to be me. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little bit on that and how athletes can find out what their best me is? <laughs> yeah, I think first of all, is be mindful, pay attention, you know, to what it's like when you have your best experiences. Uh, and that can be outside of the gym as well, you know, around who do you feel like you're your most authentic self, what it is about them that allows you that space to show up and be that and not worry about judgment of others. In the gym, what does it feel like when it's really good to be you? If you don't have that reference point when you're off, what do you have to come back to, you know? So if we can figure out the thoughts and the feelings that are associated with that, but also the values, you know, like are we operating in reaction to something or are we moving towards values driven behavior? You know, if you value being a great teammate and you're in a situation where 
things don't seem optimal to you, do you want to show up and be a great teammate or do you want to fall back to a lesser version of yourself and succumb to kind of the environment or the moment? So I, we take for granted that we can dictate how we show up in a moment, but we have to spend some time thinking in self-discovery about what that actually means for ourselves so that we can recreate it over and over and over again. And then some of that is like practicing it, you know, when it's not good to be you, can you make a choice anyways? And sometimes it's a difficult choice, you know, like, but that requires courage. It requires vulnerability. And so if you're going to, if, if you really want to step into that space, then practice courage and vulnerability on a, on a day-to-day basis, like do one thing every day that scares you so that when you're in the gym and you feel scared because things might not work out, you've tested yourself in some sort of way so that you can generate some sort of confidence that like, Hey, I can, I can do this right now. Like I can be me and be a great teammate and play well. So uh, I think we don't test ourselves enough. And then train your mind. You know, like optimism is one, one thing you can do to train your mind. can be very simple. As simple as like just writing down at the end of every day, like three good things. But optimism, I think I, I hesitated to say it earlier and to get like kind of nerdy with it because a lot of people when they hear optimism they roll their eyes and they think it's fluffy they think it's someone who never right, gets upset right and- right and that's not the case i think of like actually roger federer i don't know if people saw his his um, post-match interview from roland garros when he lost to nadal and you know they were like well what was your mindset going into the match and he goes look he's the best in the world on clay but every point i'm thinking i could win this point I can win this point. And that's not that's not naive. He's the best in the world in, in the history of the game, right? So Roger Federer has the right to have that optimistic lens. Like, even though he's playing the best in the world on clay, he's he's done it all. Roger has done it all. So there's credibility in the thought. Like, yeah, I could win this point. Is he going to win the point? No. Can we control outcomes? No. You know? But, like, imagine if Roger just, like, packed it up before he even walked, in, walked onto the clay, you know? So optimism we think is like a competitive advantage. If you're packing up and quitting too early, it's because there's like a lens of pessimism. Things, good things aren't gonna happen in the future. And so when you're faced with outcomes that aren't optimal or things get difficult or you face some adversity, it's really hard to bounce back from that adversity. So optimism is linked to intrinsic motivation. So if you're waking up and you find it hard to like do the thing you do, um, check your thoughts. It's also linked to resiliency. So if you find it hard to bounce back from difficult situations or if you find that like you just ruminate a lot, you know, like there was that one mistake at practice and you're still thinking about it as you're walking into practice the next day, um, that's a byproduct of resiliency and optimism. So like if you can train optimism, you can enhance your ability to be resilient. And um, what that doesn't mean is that like all of your thoughts are rainbows and ponies. Um, what that doesn't mean is that like you're happy all the time. What that means is when you're in the thick of things that you're able to shift your attention to the silver lining, so to speak. Like, what's the opportunity and the challenge right now? And the best in the world are able to do that really, really quickly and efficiently. And I can I can point to lots of examples. Jason Lezak anchoring the the four x one hundred relay at the two thousand eight Olympics is a great example 
Uh, he jumped into the pool against one of the best in the world, Le Bernard, a whole human being length behind. And in a 100, that's really hard to catch up to, you know? And the commentators thought Le Bernard was going to win. The whole world thought Le Bernard was going to win. And I'm sure Jason was thinking, like, I do this every day. Let's go. You know, like something good's about to happen here. So for me, that's like confidence and optimism in action. We see it all the time. We just, like, don't, don't filter it. So there's lots of great examples to point to. A lot of athletes also think, I should be here in my career. I should be this. I know that's something we talk about is I'll say, I should be passing the best mm-hmm. Nicole because I'm libero. That's mm-hmm. the expectation. Mm-hmm. You told me eliminate should from your vocabulary. Get, get rid of that word. That's like the first conversation I ever remember having with a sports psychologist when I was on the USA team. I walked in, I was like, I should have passed that free ball perfect. He was like, I mean... I hate to say it, but if you should have, you would have, you know, like should is a cognitive distortion. It's like um, we have these evaluations or appraisals about um, how, how we think life should go or our, our place in life. And it just gets us into trouble most often because <clears throat> at the end of the day, like if you can, you'll find a way. But should is like it happened and it's out of your control now. So what are you going to do about it? Um, and it just keeps us stuck in a rut of like a shame spiral. Like you're just beating yourself up for what reason? It's done. It's over with. It's you like know? you're wasting energy on the past. Absolutely. When you could be putting that in, in into the, the present moment right now. Yeah. But there's a distortion involved of it. Like I should have. Like uh, why? Because you're comparing yourself to someone else. What good is that doing you? Like it's not motivating you. Sometimes we we compare ourselves to others, especially if they're close to us and. In, uh, in skill level, like it can be motivating. But what happens is like, you're comparing yourself in that situation to me. And it's like, I'm a two-time Olympian. Like you got a ways to go to be able to make that comparison. Wait, you know what I mean? compare like, myself to you? I would never do that. <laughs> no, uh, I remember, I'm already self-conscious over the same I, number. No. <laughs> I cannot fill shoes. <laughs> but like, I remember one time, uh, Mick made that comparison, the coach. The head coach was like, he made the comparison of you, you to I. Uh, and it, it was a spring tournament, you know? And he was like, Nicole, you would have done this. Like, Why is it Victoria like doing that? Like, Nicole passed at this efficiency or something when I was at USC. And it's like, yeah, and I went on to be a two-time Olympian. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm an outlier. Like, oh, my you know gosh. what I mean? Like, but I, I think we do that sometimes. It's like we look to these other people, mm-hmm. even if they're on the team. It's like, I should be passing better than her. I should be doing this. The and people it's like, in your age group, people you grew up right, with, like, where yeah. are they now in their career? And if I'm not there, I'm less than, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, no, like, you're your best you. Go kick ass doing whatever it is that you're doing. I heard something recently from someone who said, everyone will catch a break. Yours might come a lot later than someone else's, but it will come if you keep on the pursuit. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think um, the way that we say that is that um, beautiful and amazing comes after doing difficult things for long periods of time, you know? And if, if you're really invested in pursuing your best whatever that is you know like we all have our own olympics that eventually something's going to work out for you um now i think that's different and i want i want to be really careful um if you're half-assing it and expecting that one day things are going to work out i can't support that thought you know if you're um practicing to perfect your craft if that's sport great if it's some other domain maybe it's being a mom maybe it's being an entrepreneur as a female like whatever it is like if you're really working hard to understand and and 
be a consummate learner in your craft, great. If you're doing something to like keep your body up because that, that matters for recovery and for the quality of your thoughts and your mind, great. Um, if you're training your mind in some sort of way, yeah, like I can support the idea that something's going to work out for you in the future. How do athletes find the balance? Because I think some people might hear you say that and think, all right, I got to eat, breathe, and sleep what I want to accomplish. And I think I've tried both in, in my life, and I've heard athletes have tried both. Yeah. And it and it's like I've played really well on the on some days when I just showed up on time and I did the thing and I and threw my hair up in the yeah. locker room didn't put but, any makeup on. But Epic. I just think some athletes like yeah. do you really do you think athletes should be every day this is for like a Tom Brady like everything I put in my body everything is leading to this or can someone who wants to be really great be professionally or whatever it is Mm -hmm. have a balance that works for them Mm -hmm. turn it on and off i think uh, i think we fall into a trap when we look at folks like tom brady as like the model for what most everyone else should be doing uh someone who comes to mind who's just like super strict in the way that he approached his craft is apollo ono and his nutrition was just uh, he was obsessive about it the way he trained was obsessive And so, you know, it worked for him. Does that work for everyone? I don't know, you know. Um, Michael Phelps was also quite obsessive, but also he had extreme success and was the most miserable he's ever been. So clearly there wasn't balance in his life and that was impacting him. So I think it's important that we don't confuse success with experience, you know. Like you can get after it in whatever sort of way and have success, I think the question is, what is your experience like? And so I will always fall back on that. Like, what is your experience like? And so if you enjoy being obsessive and compulsive about the work that you're doing and you feel like it's not at a cost to you or the relationships around you, hell yeah, go for it. If you feel like you wake up one day and you need a burger and you're a vegetarian, and go eat a burger. You know, like, I think... Our body gives us so much data and so much information that uh, for me, the greatest cost is to not pay attention to what your body and your mind are telling you. So if it's working for you and you feel great, stay with it. And you mean that with the training as well. Like some people are like, Absolutely. should I go till I'm bleeding? I had a 14 year old kid in a, in a South American country um, text me and say, hey, should I be doing extra weight training? And I'm like, well, what do you feel like right now? I'm tired. No, you shouldn't. Like there's... Like, pay attention to your body, you know? Like, what you should do is go for a walk and do some dynamic stretching. And if that helps, then cool, get an extra day of weights in. But, like, if you're tired and you feel like you're always playing catch-up, you're probably playing the wrong game in terms of how you're approaching what you're doing. But it's so hard for an athlete because I can think of, like, people who want to train to be the best and they have a day where they're tired and they think, well, so-and-so is not taking their tired day, so then they keep going. So then the question is, is that thought born out of anxiety? So I relate to this, right? When I first got to the national team, we trained eight hours a day, and I asked to do extra reps because my model was I need to do more to be more. And so if you want to do more because so-and-so is doing more, your model's broken. If you want to do more because you feel like you can squeeze out an extra 1% of learning, have at it. I Get with that. it, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, if the model is like, no, i, I got to do more to be like this person or be, uh, be more um, for the approval of others, then you're operating from the wrong model. Now, I want to shift into the personal philosophy statement mm-hmm. because that's something that I know is super important to you and mm-hmm. you coach that into a lot of your... 
uh, mentees and people that you coach. Mm -hmm. So could you kind of define what that is for me and explain why that purpose and meaning is so important? Sure. Yeah. Um, So personal philosophy is something that I've gotten from Coach Carroll and also Dr. Mike Gervais. And it's really just a statement, 25 words or less of like what you're all about as a person. And so I think for me, one of the greatest challenges of my entire career was just being able to show up and express myself authentically in a really alpha competitive, sometimes dysfunctional environment. And it sucks to be in a space where you don't feel your most authentic self. So what happens for most of us is that we don't take the time to get really clear on who we are. Like, what is our identity outside of the roles that we play in life? And so we tend to get pushed around uh, by the different environments that we're in. And that was happening to me. So, um, and then there's, you know, a psychological phenomenon around it. Like, if if you're really athletic, say you were a great volleyball player when you were young, uh, what happens is people design conversations around you, around being a great volleyball player, rather than, you're so compassionate. You're so sweet. Like, it's really amazing how you show up for your teammates. And you work so hard, honey. I'm so excited to watch you work hard again this weekend. It's like, did you play? Were you better than the other girls? Oh, my God, I can't believe your coach didn't play. Like, parents are talking to kids this way. And so we start to forge our identity with the things that we do rather than this is who I am. This is this amazing sport that I get to play, which is an expression of something I love and I'm passionate about. So then we have an opportunity to, like, go show ourselves in some sort of way. It feels like our entire identity is at stake rather than I'm this rad person. (laughs) This is this rad sport. Let me go do what I love. Right. And so part of a personal philosophy is like decoupling that, that process. Like who are you as a human being outside of everything else and why 25 words or less? Cause like, can you articulate it to others or is it really clear for you in a moment that you feel really tested and challenged? And um, for me, the way I think of it is like, it's, it's a filter for our thoughts and our words and our actions. If you think about people that um, are most authentic, there's such alignment between their thoughts, words, and actions that they can show up and be authentic in any environment. I think this is the greatest challenge of our of our generation or of people, you know, your age, our age right now is like authenticity. authenticity. And it's because we're confusing fitting in with belonging. And so if you do the work, like if you think about, you know, who are the people you admire and why? Um, what are the thoughts or the you know um, phrases or words that have shaped you? It could be songs, it could be books. Like we've all had those like pivotal things, you know, that have really stuck with you, um, that have guided you in certain points of life. Um, what are those things? What what was you know like I think about like I committed to USC as a walk-on athlete. Like what were the thoughts behind that? Because <laughs> it was a huge risk to do that, uh, and you know it was like why not me? That was the thought that kept bubbling up for me. And so that that idea, like, why, my, why not me? And the extension of that is, like, why not you? And hopefully you get that when you talk to me. In it's like, I, way, really. I think the world is possible. Like, why not you? When I, when I with my individual clients, especially females, when I'm, I'm like, okay, like, what's up? Like, what's, what's your vision? You know, like, what are you going to do? And they lay it out there, huge dreams, huge goals. And, and then I look, and there's, like, this sad look on their faces. And the question is always, like, why do I have a right? to actually pursue this it's like why not you like why can't you be the next olympian why can't you be the next um female entrepreneur billionaire under 30 like why not you know and so like what are the driving like 
principles in your life that you can maybe distill down into 25 words or less that really capture who you are. So my philosophy is live curiously, wildly, and wisely. Uh, and if I look back to pivotal moments in my life, those three kind of, I call them big rocks, were what were driving my decisions in those moments. So what is it for you? You know, like, can you get really clear so that others aren't dictating how you're showing up or your experience? You can dictate it. Something I think people will maybe grapple with when they take that in and try to do it is this like, well, is this me? Like, is this a good statement? And I remember I came up with my statement. I absolutely loved it. My statement was relentless in pursuit because I feel like I'm someone who, if I truly want something, I relentlessly pursue it. I might not get it. It might not get handed to me, but I will do what I can to make it happen. And that stuck with me. And then I remember I went to a therapy session and somehow we're talking and I share my philosophy statement and my therapist said something like, something like, do you think that's causing you anxiety that you have to be relentlessly pursuing things? And I got so offended because I was like, I value everything you say so much. Like I love coming to sessions and you just kind of put a little scratch in something that I worked so hard to create. And then I had to go through this whole period of like, well, is this a good statement for me? And I was like, you know what? It is a good statement for me. And so just to anyone who's going to go make their statement, I think you would advise too, like, it's got to be what you believe is you, not what you think other people will think of your statement or yeah. what you are. It's got to feel right to you. It's your personal philosophy. <laughs> and so others will test it. You know, that was a moment of test for you. Like, wait, wait, is this me? You know, and then you went and you grappled with it. You wrestled with some concepts, you know, pursuing figuring it out, which is also a good sign. Like, yeah, this is me because this is how I do things, you know. Um, so other people will will give feedback. Some will try and calibrate with you. You can take it for what it is, but at the end of the day, it's your personal philosophy. So it's got, it's got to feel right to you. And it's great to test it out, you know, like share it with other people, see what they say, and then try it back on just like a shirt. Is this me? And that's what you did, you know, like, wait a second, is this me? And then you spent some time in reflection. You're like, no, it's, screw you, this is me. <laughs> so do you think the statement is sort of ever-changing? Yeah, I, I life is not static, you know, and so... Um, you'll become a mom probably one day and you'll probably relentlessly pursue being the best mom that you can possibly be, but something might change for you fundamentally. Um, hopefully the big rocks remain kind of throughout time, um, but there's some words that might come and go uh, as life changes and your perspective on life changes, your values change, your principles change, but hopefully something in there is core to who you are and it's timeless. Another thing I want to shift to is grit. And you talked about this in your speech to our team, and it was so inspiring. Uh, how do you define that? Uh, the, this is the definition of the primary researcher of grit, who's Angela Duckworth, and she defines grit as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. So grit is this concept. It's actually it's a it's a little bit controversial controversial in uh, in the scientific community because uh, it's hard to distinguish it from some other attributes like conscientiousness, for example, or work ethic. Um, and so Angela Duckworth, what she wanted to figure out is like, okay, if we take really intelligent people, you know, uh, who are on a level playing field, they're high performing already, like what's the difference between those that thrive and don't? Some of her original research was uh, from cadets going into um, military academy. You know, they're high achieving already, four point something students, physically like just really capable. But within the first week, 200 people drop out. 
So like, what is it about those that are thriving in a high performing environment that are already high performers and those that can't quite figure it out? And so she called it grit. And what's interesting is like, if I asked you or the the people listening right now, like what is of the three components, passion, perseverance, and long-term goals, like what, what's most difficult? Most people intuitively would say, well, it's perseverance, you know, like it's hard to persevere. And then the next question is, okay, can anyone um, not raise their hand to a time that they've had to persevere? And the answer is no, like we're hardwired as human beings to do difficult things for long periods of time. So we all have a story of perseverance. What's really hard to maintain is passion. And the reason being is that fear and fatigue are like a wet blanket for the things that we're most passionate in life, which speaks to the importance of like training your mind. You know, when we talk about fear, usually we're talking about anxiety, training your mind to, to combat anxiety, which is natural if you're really getting after it. And then to, to take care of yourself in a world-class way, you know, and so that's invest in kind of pillars of recovery. What's cool about grit though, is like, if we look at performance over time, What's unique about grit uh, as a concept is that there are a couple components of it that set it do actually set it apart from from others. The first is deliberate practice. So like, are you committed to getting 1% better every single day? And then this speaks to the importance of having a feedback loop outside of yourself. So this is where coaches or like our tribe really matters. You know, are they helping you to get better? We need others to explore potential. So you think even for a tennis player, a golfer, an individual athlete, that they need someone to have a loop with? I don't care what the individual sport is, everyone has a tribe around them. So Roger Federer has five people in his tribe, for example. Um, a golfer has 10 people in their tribe. And then we need others. Like if we're just in, a, in our own bubble, the only way we understand ourselves in life is through a relationship with, uh, with others. So if we're just in our own bubble, say, you know, like we hit a 92, like we might think that's the best that's possible for us. And then someone goes by and hits a 68, and you're like, wait, what? And so the first person who ever ran a four-minute mile is a great example. We need others to be like, yo, this is possible. Like, let's go. Because um, sometimes we can't always see that for ourselves, you know. So, yes, I don't think there's an individual athlete that doesn't have a tribe around them that's helping them pursue their best. Um, the second part is, and this is, I think, what is unique of gritty people, is that if we follow theory around learning, um, basically we're just like conditioned animals uh, when we have positive reinforcement we'll keep doing something and that's that's true of a lot of learning uh, that takes place for humans what's different about gritty people is that they'll stay in something when there's a lack of feedback or when the feedback is aversive or negative so imagine all of the pain that you've gone through right most human beings will be like no no like something will go off in our rational mind be like this is too much pain i don't like, why would I do this? Let me go sit on a couch with my hoodie on and watch television. Like, Or you've got a coach that's yelling at you and saying, like, this is not good enough. That's negative feedback. Or you're going into, let's take adventure athletes. My life's on the line. That's aversive stimuli. For most human beings, they'll fall back to what is natural, which is to find comfort. And so I think that's also those two aspects, you know, like deliberate practice and being able to stay in it when feedback is not present or it's negative is what sets people apart uh, in a, when you look at like world-class performers. What do you think the number one thing is an athlete should be? Um, the mind. <laughs> Focusing on to succeed. Uh, no, I, I would, to be honest, like I think... Um, I was introduced to mindfulness meditation a year before my first Olympics and it just didn't sit with me. 
That's a funny way to talk about it. See what I did there? Um, it didn't stick, you know, and I look back on what my life was like as like a young athlete at 14, 15, 16. I wish I would have had a mindfulness practice then. And, um, you know, we, we would say that like training mindfulness is necessary, but not sufficient. It's necessary because like we need to have some sort of awareness of like what our internal experience is like to be able to regulate it in some sort of way. Um, but what I found through a mindfulness practice is just more equanimity, like a balanced perspective. And so I can be in some like difficult situations and not know what the outcomes are. And there could be risk involved and even just emotional risk and still like feel like I've got a, a sense about me. And if it doesn't work out, then uh, I'm rather than reacting to that, like I can choose how I'm going to respond in a way that's more closely aligned with my personal philosophy, let's say. So mindfulness for me has been one of the biggest game changers in my life, my performance as an athlete, but just like in how I experience life every single day. And I acknowledge it's not for everyone. Um, the research is really compelling. A uh, great book to read if you're kind of nerdy and you want to read about mindfulness is Altered Traits by Richard Davidson and Daniel Goleman. Uh, there's tons of books out there, apps, whatever, like I would encourage people just to try, you know, and as a young athlete, just to try um, so that you can feel a greater sense of groundedness going into into games that maybe really matter to you, you know. I think we over-index on the performance side of things, especially in the United States, and under-index on what our experiences are like. And so having mindfulness practices fundamentally changed how I experience things. Sometimes I know you preach on being the, well, all the time, all the time you preach on being the best version of yourself, trying to be the best you. And I think there's a lot of moments in just our day-to-day lives too, where it's really hard to be ourselves, whether that's a parent, a friend, someone that just causes us to be someone we don't like. Mm -hmm. What's the best way we can tap into being our best self? And then also what's the line between like, if I'm being the best version of myself, I'm going to be giving a lot in this moment. And I don't know if I have that. I always think when Courtney Thompson came, she said something like, when it's been a rough day for you and you're, you say, Hey, what's up? And your friend says, actually not like, it's not good. Can we talk? Can you be the best version of yourself and be patient and be there to listen when you just wanted to go home? And I always think about that because I'm like, I wanted, I want to be that person, but sometimes I feel like I need to go home because (laughs) I've had a rough day too. So what's the line? Again, like this is, it's so unique to you, you know, like, and this is where having a mindfulness practice is just being mindful, you know, like your body, your mind will tell you where the line is, but we don't often pay attention to those signals that we're getting. Like, for example, if someone comes up to you and is like, you say, hey, how's it going? They're like, actually, it's, you know, it's pretty shitty. Like, can we talk? And you're just, like, you've had a tough day yourself. Like, to be able to take a beat and recognize my heart rate just, like, went up a little bit. Like, and then being your best self in that moment is saying, hey, like, I want to talk to you right now, but I'm exhausted. Like, and it's been a tough day for me, too. I want to be there for you, but I don't feel like I can be there for you because I need to fill my cup first. Can we talk tomorrow? For me, that's like being your best self, recognizing where that where the line is, you know? Like, yes, can you show up and be there for people when it's inconvenient for you? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes we got to step up and do that. 
other times though we have to recognize that we can only be the best we can for other people when we filled our cup first and so then the question is like are you doing what you need to recover from all of all that you're doing for other people you know if that's if if you being your best self is giving to others in some sort of way then you've got to have uh, a routine of to be able to fill your cup uh, that's like you know i'm starting a doctoral program in psychology finishing a master's that's like every psychologist has a routine that they have after they see a client to be able to like wash it <laughs> and then to be able to show up and hold space for the next really? client yeah and we don't do that enough it's not something that's talked about you know like um it is one it can be exhausting if you're not used to just showing up and being your most authentic self it can be exhausting in the beginning um but hopefully like when you're just being you it it doesn't feel as exhausting anymore um i think when we're trying to be something for someone in this environment then we go home we're trying to be someone for our family and then you know like uh doing the thing you're most passionate about you're trying to be a certain person in that environment that is what is exhausting and so can you for example just be your personal philosophy and take that wherever your heart goes and what you'll find is that in that space of authenticity that it just is easier to be you and you burn through less resources so maybe in those situations where other people need you you're able to show up so i th- i think it requires the mindfulness of what's taking place for you uh and if you can show up for someone else and lastly, I just... Yeah, Sorry, ahead. I just wanted to add, uh, you know, when it comes to intimate relationships, I think uh, Brene Brown and her husband have this really cool thing uh, that resonated with me where, like, she'll walk in the door and say her husband's already uh, home and she'll be like, honey, I'm at, like, a two on a scale of 100, you know? <laughs> and, he'll, and he'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll pick up the slack. You know, I'm only at a 90, like, just so you know, but, like, I'll... I'll, I'll I'll get up to 95. Can you meet me at like 10? <laughs> you know? And so just being able to have those conversations also with people and a really, that's being authentic and that's being real in, in every sense of, of the imagination to just be able to say in our intimate relationships. And that doesn't mean like it can be your partner or it can be a friend, a colleague, coworker, whatever it is, like wh- whoever it is, like to be able to just say, and this requires vulnerability I'm at like a 10 right now. Like it's been a tough day and like, like I need to be able to show up and be a mom for our kid, like our kids. I don't think I can do it. Like, can you create 20 minutes of space for me just to sit and be, you know, like it's so hard to say that for some reason, asking for help or being vulnerable and expressing that like we feel weak in a moment is so hard for us. But like we, the more that we can just say it, one diffuse it. Like I suck right now. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not good right now like help me out the more that we can lean on others in that space too is a really beautiful thing that's something that took me a really long time to learn in college i thought i had to be i had to do it myself i had to do everything myself mm-hmm. and then like freshman sophomore year i'm so drained my mental health is such a low point mm-hmm. i finally had to do that mm-hmm. and now i just am trying to tell everyone do it <laughs> as soon as you think you need it yeah so we don't get anywhere bad yeah and lastly i'll just end with i'm curious i'm sure everyone's curious about What's the best advice you've ever received? Mm. Mm. Um, I would say there have been a couple. Uh, trust yourself to, to be good enough uh, was something that Jamie uh, Carol, Pete's daughter, who's a good friend of mine, uh, told me when we were in college and I was going through some stuff, you know. Uh, and that's tough because, like, 
you know, especially when you're younger, you're in college, your your model is to compare yourself to others. But just to trust in that, like everything you have is already within you and that you are good enough and it doesn't matter who you're around or what you're doing uh, was one of the greatest pieces of advices that I got. Another piece of advice from her (laughs) also was that um, people come and go in our lives. Um, We can't always control that, but like, what are you, what is it? that you can take from them not in like a selfish sort of way but like say you and I never talked ever again for the rest of our lives you know oh, like, you know I'm never letting that happen I know it's not possible <laughs> um, but like what is it in a beautiful way that you can take from the experiences that we had together you know and I think um, this is something when I think about like failed relationships you know something that helps me get through it is like what is the thing that is like, what is the mark that was left on me from that person? Because I've had people come and go, especially, you know, I've lived in eight different countries throughout my career and I've not been able to stay in touch with everybody. But it's like, there's so many people left such a beautiful mark and I want to make sure that I'm honoring that. Um, but sometimes it's easy to get into like the, how sad it is, you know, like that things didn't work out or that you haven't seen a person. Um, and then just this idea that like, um, that I don't have to be perfect, <laughs> that I can adjust and that I can figure things out. Uh, has created a lot of freedom for me. And this gets back to confidence, but I erred on the side of perfectionism and I erred on the side of what others say, say matters and achievement matters. And um, it just created a lot of freedom for me to just let go of like needing to over-prepare or to be perfect and the anxiety that comes with that. And just like fuck this, you know, like, I'm going to show up (laughs) and like, figure it out, you know, and, uh, and so that's something I practiced too, you know, like, uh, I had a keynote today, and it was an hour, and I had certain things that I wanted to hit, but it was not scripted, and then it's like, yeah, how how am I going to adjust when I forget what I'm supposed to say, or (laughs) someone asks a question, you know, I'm not quite sure, so just the idea that, like, yeah, we can all adjust, we can all figure some stuff out, we're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on Hashtag Real Pod. Thank you for being in my life. And thank you for sharing all your wisdom with everyone listening today. I'm sure that this will go a long way for the people listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Hashtag Real Pod. I'm about to say a few important things, so please keep listening. Um, if you guys loved this, you can follow Nicole's Instagram. It's Nicole M. Davis 6. Also, I'm going to be posting a free one-month link and code for you guys to try mindfulness on my favorite meditation app, and I'm going to be posting that on the Instagram RealPod. So make sure you're following RealPod so you can get that free trial. I'm not getting anything from that. I, If you're a meditation app and you're um, listening to this podcast, feel free to sponsor me, but I'm just doing that and sharing it with you guys because I want you to try it because it is so helpful, and as Nicole said, you should totally be doing it if you want to improve your game. And also, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, oh my gosh. Um, oh, every Thursday, I think Thursday, maybe Thursday or Friday, I'm going to be coming out with a solo hashtag real pod episode of just me for about 20 or 30 minutes 
elaborating on the topic of the week. So from this podcast, I think something so important was the personal philosophy statement. So I'm going to release another podcast episode with me just explaining exactly how you do that process, exactly what it looks like, how you can do it um, so that you guys can create your own personal philosophy statements for your own life. So make sure that you are checking in on RealPod and you're subscribed because those solo episodes with me are going to be coming to you once a week as well. And I'm super excited to give you guys more detail and dive further into the great topics that my guests and I discuss. So make sure you're subscribed, make sure you check back in later this week, and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, night, or morning. Bye.